Well, good morning. We greet all of you in Christ's name. We welcome the guests, especially we uh, give you a warm welcome. We love having guests. Recently, I was um, reading of Saul's account in Acts 9. And uh, Saul was a man who was charting his own destiny. He, he was destroying lives. He was a man who understood the law but he knew nothing about mercy. And on the road to Damascus, his story took an abrupt change. Light from heaven, he was was blinded. A voice and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul answered, Lord, who art thou that I, who art thou? And he heard the response, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And it's a story that the Apostle Paul told over and over again as you read the Acts, accounts and Acts. It seemed the story, every time he told it, it seemed fresh. And I imagine him as he finishes his story, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This morning I want to take the time that I have and the scriptures to help all of you to understand that you have a story. A story only because of the grace of God. Now, I'm not sure what you think about when you think about grace, but perhaps listening to someone else's story will help. For a moment, I want you to listen to the words of Corey Ten Boom from her book, The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boone was one of those individuals who had survived the horrors of a, a Nazi concentration camp. And uh, a number of years after the war, she began telling her story of, of losing her, her parents, watching her sister Betsy star, uh, die from starvation. A number of years had passed since the Holocaust, but the memories of it had still lingered for, for Corey. One evening as she was giving a message at a church, she was greeted by a man she recognized as the SS guard at the shower room from the concentration camp. The memories just kind of washed all over her again, the the room full of leering, mocking men as they were watching the women, the heaps of clothing, the gaunt, pale face of her sister Betsy. She writes, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. I had preached so often to the people the need to forgive. I kept my hand at my side. Even as angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive him, forgive me, and help me to forgive him. She's praying this in her mind. She faces this guard. I tried to smile, I struggled to raise my hand. I, I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or or charity or 
grace. So again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, oh Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I finally took his hand, the most incredible thing happened to me. From my shoulder along my arm through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed. And so I discovered it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges. Love activates grace. You know, all of us at one point in another in life stood as condemned as that SS guard. And for a moment, I want to take you back to Paul's letter to the Romans. And some of you are thinking, man, I thought we just got done with that a while ago. But uh, we did. But uh, it's something that we need to continually at times to refresh ourselves. Because in this congregation, we believe in grace-giving and grace-living. You see, grace, if we can understand the grace in our vertical relationship with God, it helps us in extending grace in our horizontal relationships with others. Look at Romans 5.8. It says, But God commended his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss that. God's love is toward us. How did God do that? Did he shout from heaven, I love you? No. Look at what John writes. 1 John 4, 9, it says, And this was, was manifested love of God toward us, because God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. God put on a public demonstration for the whole world to see what the love of God looks like. He sent his son. Why would God do that? Is it because we're pretty amazing? Well, that's not this picture that God paints. Notice what it says in verse 10. Here in his love, not that we, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not only did we not love God, but notice what verse 6 of Romans 5, 6 says. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Jesus, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were unloving, and we were without strength. We were helpless. But not only were we helpless, we were ungodly. We were nothing like God. But he adds to this list. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. He calls us enemies. You know, I'm convinced this morning that these words seem foreign to most of us. To those of us who have grown up in a Christian home, we've seen prayer, we've watched the scriptures being read, we've gone to church, 
We've listened to sermons. We've attended Sunday school. These things are all good and commendable. All of, all of us should be grateful that we were afforded those kinds of opportunities. But you know, we've done a lot of the same what the Jews did. We used it as, as rungs to a ladder to climb to heaven. Externally, we all looked good. See, you never saw anybody in church looking unloving, helpless, ungodly, or as an enemy of God. Everybody looked good. You see, what we fail to understand, that God x-rays our heart. We find that in Romans 8. It says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So that they are in the flesh cannot please God. Moffat uses the word interests. The interests of the flesh means death. The interests of the flesh are hostile to God. The interests of the flesh do not yield to the law of God. You see, what condemns us before God is the internal, our heart, our mind, our values, our thought processes. Samuel Yokelson and Stanton Samenow wrote a two-volume book called The Criminal Personality. And in that book, they maintain that criminal behavior is the result of warped thinking. In fact, they devote three entire sections to the book to the thinking errors of the criminal. They write, It is remarkable that a criminal often derives as great an impact from his activities during non-arrestable phases as he does from the crime. The criminal thinking, criminal's thinking pattern operates everywhere. They are not restricted to the crime. You see, what he's describing for us is a depraved, reprobate mind. They continue, The sociological explanations have been unsatisfactory. The idea that a man becomes a criminal because he is corrupted by his environment has proved to be too weak an explanation. We have indicated that criminals come from a broad spectrum of homes, both disadvantaged and privileged within the same neighborhood. Some are violators and most are not. It is not the environment that turns a man into a criminal. And I want you to notice these words. Rather, it is a series of choices that he makes starting at a very early age. He will eventually decide everything is worthless. And they conclude his thinking is illogical. Do you see how deceptive sin can be? How it is able to twist our minds to think illogically. G.I. Packard writes a wonderful story how denial can blind us to the truth. He loved to tell a story of a psychiatrist who was brought, had a man came into his office who was convinced he was dead. The psychiatrist's job was to convince him that he was living. 
and he seemed he couldn't convince him. Finally, he uh, settled on a foolproof plan. He took a, a couple of medical books from his shelf and he gave them to the man. He said, now read these chapters. You see, you will see that dead men do not bleed and you can read it for yourself. And the guy said, okay. And so he takes the books and in about a week he comes back and the doc says, so what do you think? What did you learn? The, guy, uh, the patient said, I am now convinced that it is perfectly clear that based on the evidence in this medical journal and this medical book that dead men do not bleed. I am convinced. Without saying a word, the psychiatrist takes the needle from a drawer and takes the man's finger and pricks it. And out came blood. And the man said, great Scott, dead men do bleed. <laughs> I love the grace of God. The grace of God does not gloss over the extent of our lost estate. No matter how great we looked in church, love that goes upward is called worship. And love that goes outward is called affection. But love that stooped and picked me and you up out of the miry pit and gave us a standing is called grace. Years ago, we took a trip out west, and we toured a cave. We actually took an elevator down into the cave, and it was three stories down. And as we were walking through the cave, the, the, the tour guide shut off all the lights. And she informed us in the dark that after three days, you lose your sight, and after seven days, you just go mad and become a tour guide, <laughs> which was comforting. And then she went and lit a match, and it was amazing how one small match, how much light that gave. We see in verse 20 of Romans chapter 5, the light and the darkness. It says, moreover the, law and, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Notice that. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Years ago, I sat across the table from a man who had made a profound change in his life, and, and I told him I was interested in hearing his testimony. And... Uh, he told me as he began pursuing God, he had always believed that the stricter a church standard, the greater the righteousness of the church. He said, as I researched, I discovered otherwise. And he said, uh, it seemed that the stricter the church standard, the more sin was in the church. And he said, it troubled me. He said, I, he stated, I began a, a personal study of Romans. And through that study, I became convinced of my own personal need of a Savior, and that Savior I found in Jesus Christ, and I received Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul writes to the Galatians that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and in that case, the law worked perfectly in his situation. It brought him to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. One poet wrote, do this the law demands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. 
A better words God grace does bring. It bids me fly and gives me wings. But you see, there's a continuing work of grace. When Jesus made payment for your sins and mine, that payment that he made was both propitiatory and expiatory. And those are some big words. I like to throw them around a little bit here. But it actually is really, they're really pretty simple. There are two sides to this grace. The propitiatory means it dealt with God's demand and God's wrath for your sins. The expiatory means that it, it removed the guilt from the one who had offended. It took care of the guilt of the sinner that your sin had caused. So as, as it's a wonderful thing to understand that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you don't have to carry the guilt for your sin. It is expiatory. Look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Notice that. The payment of, of Jesus Christ for our sins took care of God's, settled God's demand, God's wrath. It also took care of our sin. But it, notice what it says. Now being reconciled, how much shall we be saved by his life? There is something more to the work of grace than many understand. Um, if Christ's death accomplished that, how much will Christ save us when he lives within us? You see, grace does a whole lot more than save us from hell. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And notice this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing that the grace of God and of, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, grace not only bids us to fly, it teaches us how to fly. Grace teaches us how to live. Now, I want to take you into a deeper part of grace this morning. You see, salvation is not a matter of improving or perfecting what is. God is in the business of complete transformation, creating in you what has never, ever before existed. That which has never, ever been a part of your life. He's not interested in you just uh, a better image. He's interested in character. He's interested in quality. And from our perspective, salvation begins by repentance. There's, there's something about this we need to understand. Repentance means the changing of one's mind about self, sin, and God. One's mind and one's actions. Now, repentance in self does not save us. And yet God cannot save us without us turning from sin. He cannot save us from sin if we will not let go of sin. 
Do you understand me? I am not teaching perfection here, that you need to have yourself all cleaned up and come to God. I'm saying that there must be a willingness to release sin as your master and turning to Jesus Christ as your master. There's a difference there. Now look at Ephesians 4.17. I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of, the, of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who past feeling have given themselves to lasciviousness to work all in cleanness with greediness. I want you to understand there are four words that described all of us in times past, described our lives. Hardness, darkness, deadness, and recklessness. When Paul uses the word blindness, he's talking about the hardness of the heart. At the very core of a lost person is a hardened heart. The word blindness is the Greek word porosis. And the base word is pero. It's a kind of a stone. So the depravity is a hardened heart coupled with a darkened mind, separated from God. That does not mean a lack of intelligence. There are a lot, there's some lost people that are very intelligent people. It just means they lack spiritual perception. Being totally ignorant of the spiritual things, deadness in the spirit. Just as a corpse cannot hear a conversation in a mortuary, a person who is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins cannot understand the things of God, no matter how loudly and clearly they are declared and evidenced in his presence. Are you with me? Which leads to recklessness, verse 19. Who past feeling have given themselves in over unto lasciviousness, which means licentiousness. It means to work all uncleanness, impurity, with greediness. That's exactly how pornography works. You feed it to your mind, it grows a little by little. You need a bigger stimulant, more debasing, more reckless, more vile until it takes over your life. And then we have the most, those who walk in the most immoral without any kind of shame, and that is the LGBT community. One, th uh, one individual put it this way, our culture is hell-bent on its recklessness and cavalier pursuit of sin. It makes psychopaths its martyrs and drag queens its models. Verse 20 gives us the contrast. But ye have not so learned Christ. You know what that means? It means you've been to the cross. You not only died with Jesus Christ, but you resurrected with Jesus Christ. 
And there, just as there was a phenomenal change in Jesus Christ through the, the death, burial, and resurrection, there was a change in Jesus Christ, there's an even bigger change within each of you. Through the grace of God, the power of God, and the Spirit of God, there's an absolutely transformational change that takes place within the, mind, within the heart of the believer. Let me help you out. You now possess a new heart, a new inheritance, a new will, a new life, a new hope, a new relationship, a new power, a new knowledge, a new wisdom, a new perception, a new understanding, a new righteousness, a new love, a new desire, a new citizenship. It just, you can just go on and on and on. And not one of us deserved it. Not one of us earned it. There was nothing in us that made, would, have, would have drawn God to any of us. Consider verses 21 to 24. If so, ye be, if so be that ye have heard him and have taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man who is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. In Colossians 3, there's the word have that is in there. The Apostle Paul puts in there. And it means that all of these are in the aorist tense. When we receive Jesus Christ, we put off the old man. We became renewed in the spirit of our mind. And we put on the new man. Now, the, the putting off of the old man is also in the middle voice, meaning we cooperate with God in putting off the old man. But there's something about this that we also need to understand, that this is not a one-time process. It continues throughout our life. We continue to put off that old man. We continue being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And we continue putting on the, 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 new, the, the new man. You see, as this happens, as we put off the old man, we are renewed and put on the new man. And we, 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 are, uh, we embrace the scriptures and the spirit of God. We become, what Philippians 2 says, we have access to the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, though we are totally transformed within, we are still not complete or perfected without. There's still a part of us that longs for a redemption body. 
especially as people get older, there's a longing for a new body. There's something else about this. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says that, uh, well, let me just quote it here, Romans 7. Verse 23, but I see another law working in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me in captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's, the Apostle Paul realized that even though there was a transformation within, there was still in his flesh, in his body, that tendency, that principle, or that law towards sin. I try to think of a simple way to put that this morning. And though we are healed within, the limp remains. There's a great story in 2 Samuel 9 that could be used to illustrate what I'm talking about this morning. 2 Samuel 9, the setting is Israel, Saul is gone, and David is on the throne. Israel is experiencing both peace and prosperity. Uh, David was one of those kings who was a kind king. He wasn't a dictator. He was a shepherd. And uh, there, was, there was blessings to be experienced by his kingdom. Uh, as one said, there was a chicken in every pot. The, the, the people were experiencing prosperity. And David is in his, in his palace one day, and he's... He's contemplating, reflecting on his life, and, and all of a sudden he remembers something. He remembers a promise that he had made to a good friend named Jonathan, Saul's son. He had promised Jonathan to take care of his family. You see, that's unusual. Usually a king, when he comes into power, he slaughters all the, 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 the descendants of the former king so that they can never, ever regain the throne. But David is thinking something different. He's thinking, what could I do to keep the promise to Jonathan? Verse 1. And David said, Is there any left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. The word kindness is the Hebrew word kesed. It's actually a guttural, a guttural word. If you say it right, it sounds like you're clearing your throat. Kesed. Um, it means a mercy. And think of the word grace. Is there any of the house of Saul, a servant whose name Ziba? And they, they called unto him David, and the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there any yet of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son who is lame on his feet. He's a cripple. In a very subtle way, Ziba was telling David, uh, this guy isn't palace material. He, he, he's embarrassing. 
He's not like the rest of us. He isn't tall. He isn't handsome. He isn't bright. You see, Ziba missed one word that David had said. Is, is there any? Any? I love David's response in verse 4. He's, and the king said unto him, Where is he? You see, David doesn't ask, is, uh, is this guy on crutches? Is he handicapped? Is, is, is someone going to have to take care of him? Now, those are the kind of questions we would ask because of our limb. Verse 5. And then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Makar, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, the best way I could paraphrase this is he was a nobody from nowhere. Lodabar suggests a place of barrenness, wilderness, desert. David, this guy's a, a nobody from nowhere. And David says, go get him. You know why? Because David understands grace. Allow me to make some analogies. The first analogy is this. David, out of sh sheer grace, extends his love to a nobody, just like God did to you and me. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have thought as he heard the, the king's chariots and the king's guard? He probably thought my life is over. It's lights out. So the king's guard loads Mephibosheth into the chariot, crutches and all. Let me give you a second analogy. Just as David searched and found Mephibosheth, so has God searched for you. You'll notice that they didn't tell him, clean yourself up, you're going to see the king. No, they just told him to hurry. The king wants to see you. Verse 6 reads, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and, and did reverence. And David said unto Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold a servant. You see, Mephibosheth falls flat on his belly, his face closed right flat against the floor. And David says to him in verse 7, Fear not, for I will show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of, the Saul, of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Let me give you the third analogy. In the same way David restored Mephibosheth to a place of honor, so has God done for you.
Imagine Mephibosheth being like some children from a third world country who need to be monitored for their food intake because they've never seen that much food. I imagine someone having to say, Mephibosheth, that there's plenty of food here. You don't have to eat so much. There's a fourth analogy. In the same way David the king adopted Mephibosheth into his family, so the king of kings and the lord of lords has graciously adopted you and me. You get to eat at his table. Your seat is reserved. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertaineth to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may, may have food to eat, but Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said unto the king, According to all the Lord the king hath commanded to his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Stop and think about how this must have been. Supper time. You have Solomon at the table. There's Absalom, he's handsome, his long hair. There's Tamar, there's Absalom's blood sister. Perhaps Job on occasion is there. And then they wait for Mephibosheth. Clump, scrape. Clump, scrape, clump, scrape. As he makes his way to the table of the king. Let me give you the fifth analogy. Mephibosheth's limp was a constant reminder of a king's grace. The same is true of us. Those tendencies, the law of sin, and the old body of ours is a constant reminder of our king's amazing grace. It says in verse 13, And so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, did eat continually at the king's table, and was lame on, lame on both of his feet. The sixth analogy at the king's table, there is neither status nor rank. They are all just sons and daughters. The same is true of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Imagine one evening as they're sitting at the table, it's supper time. And King David turns to Mephibosheth and asks Mephibosheth to ask the blessing. I can imagine it starting out with some silent sobs. Maybe thank you, God, for 
a nobody that gets to sit at the king, meet with the king every night. The reality is one day that's going to be real for all of us. One day you're going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and you're going to know what Mephibosheth felt like. Because you're going to be a nobody who gets to sit at a king's table and experience the marriage supper. What a moment that will be. And it is only grace that took us there. Let's bow. The table is set. The meal is prepared. And the king is waiting. But how sad it would be for you to miss supper. God asks us all a very simple question in Romans chapter 1. The question he asks, do you not know that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance? If God has been speaking to you this morning in his still small voice, there's something that would keep you from supper with a king. Wouldn't you take care of it now? I'm just going to ask you to slip quietly out of your seat and make your way to the basement and somebody will be with you. Is there anyone? Father, in this moment we bow before you, our, our King, the one who is worthy of all our praise, Father, forgive us for our arrogance and our pride. That beam in our own eye that keeps us from seeing our own limp. Forgive us for being impatient with each other, with one another. Thank you for coming to our Lodabar bar and finding us, and choosing us and adopting us. For it is surely your work, your power, and your grace. And in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Christ, and though he were rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Even Jesus, we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.